On the topic of greenhouse gas emissions, I think we're going to find more solutions such as this Bovair product in the future. And I think the other big area of promise is this genetic selection area, right? Because that has the ability to be widely adopted. The other key thing is also just keeping that focus on ruminants and their potential to generate high quality human food from low quality inputs. And I think anything we can do to kind of enhance that productivity and enhance that um, efficiency of ruminant production around the world is something that is very exciting to me because, again, I think that's the biggest bucket of opportunity for us is to improve. It's time for conversations about our food and how it's grown on Farm to Table Talk with your host, Roger Wasson. Well, it's important for us to know and understand the environmental impacts of all different segments of society, but agriculture and then animal agriculture in particular. And I'm, I've had some conversations on that in the past, and I'm looking forward to today talking to Dr. Sarah Place, who's with Colorado State University. And Sarah, welcome to Farm to Table Talk. Thanks for having me. You're a professor of feedlot systems, sustainable solutions. You've got climate uh, neutrality you focus on. You've got an Agnext team. There's a lot to sort out there. Where do we start? Right, for sure. So I am at Colorado State University, and I'm affiliated with a group called Agnext. And so Agnext has been around for a couple of years, and it's really a research collaborative that is totally focused on sustainable animal agriculture. So it's an initiative from Colorado State University, from the College of Ag, the College of Vet Med Biosciences. And it's a team that includes folks like myself, animal scientists, agricultural economists, um, veterinarians, people that specialize in modeling. And the whole idea is to really focus in on this complex issue of sustainability and come up with solutions for the industry that are practical, that are scalable, that make economic sense. Really focus on all three of those pillars of sustainability from a standpoint of environment, social, economic. Um, and so that's what I do here. My particular focus is more on the animal side with regard to enteric methane. So my particular focus is what can we do to cut the single largest source of greenhouse gas emissions from animal ag, which is enteric methane, particularly in beef cattle, but our work has translational uh, value to the dairy industry as well. Um, but I'm really focused on beef cattle and especially in feedlot systems, confinement systems. When you speak of methane, we're usually usually thinking, I'm thinking about methane digesters, which we've talked about before. But that requires uh, uh, manure usually kind of going into a lagoon. So like in the dairies, there's there's concrete uh, in the dairies, and they can they can take the manure out of the out of these facilities, and they can put them into a, a holding pond, a lagoon, and cover it. And in complex ways, I could never try to explain. It'd be able to convert methane into something that we can use, rather than shoot it up into the into the atmosphere. But when you talk about feedlots, most of the most of the feedlots I think about are are dry lot. Big, mm -hmm. big pens and the cattle are out there and you don't have that typical system of flushing manure off of cement or slaughtered floors or something like that. It's it's out there in, in the dirt. So, you know, 
it's a little different. It, I, so the methane digesters don't fit into the beef picture in my mind. Am I am I right on that or wrong? Yeah, that's correct. Right. So currently, um, manure digestion is really focused on those more liquid manures, right? Lower solids content manures, and that distinction that you describe between the two housing systems is also important just to realize there's not that much methane that actually comes from manure in feedlots or in dry lot systems. So same thing for dry lot dairies in more of the southwestern United States that have that management system. So um, methane, it can come from many different sources, right? Everything from wetlands to ruminants to uh, right manure and all those systems have the same thing in common, which is Basically, they are oxygen-free environments, right? So there are situations where you, you don't have exposure to air. And because feedlot systems have that manure exposed to air all the time, there's very little methane that actually gets generated from those housing systems. So kind of answer your question, right? Digesters don't typically make sense in the feedlot sector because methane for manure is also not really a problem we're dealing with for feedlots. You know, one thing as you say that, it just makes me think that it's it's one more reason that you could have a positive story about feedlots because there's a typical consumers that don't know much about it when they hear feedlots they just assume a lot of negative things because it sounds it sounds like confinement operations well they're 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 somewhat confined they're fenced in in, in lots but it's uh it's, it sounds like it's one of those positives then compared to say what might be the poultry or the a lot of the pork operations that are are totally contained, and they are working with more of this of this liquid manure. It, yeah, it's all very different system to system, right? So those are some good examples you brought up. Actually, with poultry, we also don't see a lot of methane coming from manure. Oh, sure, sure. It tends to be managed as a as a solid litter, right? And you actually don't yeah. get a lot of methane either. Um, but yeah, for swines and swine operations and dairies. They tend to have some of those similar um, challenges and opportunities when it comes to managing manure, right? Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, it's it's all about it's all about the management in those different systems and how um, those management systems, production systems, can potentially affect those emissions. But for us, for beef, right? When we think about the beef cattle system, it really is a combination of extensive grazing for the majority of the animal's life, and then um, confinement and eating this higher energy containing diet when they're in a feedlot and that that kind of blending of those two different systems um, is both a challenge and opportunity as well in terms of how we try to reduce methane in both segments which mostly is coming from actually the animals themselves or their the microorganisms right that live in their gut so enteric methane or methane from the gut of the animal is much more important proportionally for the beef industry um, than the dairy industry and especially for swine that are not, you know, those aren't ruminant animals, right? So um, that's that's kind of those differences of each one of those systems have different areas to to uh, target from a standpoint of mitigation of greenhouse gas emissions. Yeah. What about sheep industry? There's some lamb feedlots out there too. Yeah. So lamb would be very similar to to the beef system, right? From a standpoint of, you know, in this area around Fort Collins, Colorado, we have a few um, lamb feedlots here too, right? And, and similar system where it's kind of an extensive uh, uh, ewe operations, right? And, and lambing. And then we have um, animals going into feedlots for finishing in some parts of the country as well. So similar to beef, right? The small ruminants sound exactly the same, but there's some similarities there between 
the beef cattle industry and the sheep industry in the United States. So what can we do about it? I mean, I think that for a lot of the laymen and consumers listening that they've been concerned about beef. As you know, you hear all about the ones that are giving up uh, meatless Mondays and and meatless weeks, and some would, would just have institutions. Even I'm sure there's some people at Colorado State that would like to to get less beef served on the menu because it's become fashionable, spreading to a lot of areas. I mean, what's your role at the university to try to, uh, I think, both dispel some of the of the myths, but then also make changes that there's less and less issues. If uh, what do you do? How do you, how do you address that with research and with your colleagues at the university? Yeah, so it's it's important, and that's part of our role as a land grant university, and really what we lean into at Agnax, which is taking on issues from a standpoint of doing research to answer unanswered questions, but then also doing that education of students here on campus and also outreach, right, to the broader public in terms of sharing knowledge. So that's really the way we tackle that is with that classic land grant mission. And if we think about, you know, some of those questions you raised, it's always important to take a step back and put in context just how much greenhouse gas emissions are coming from beef cattle, right, in general. Um, so if we think about the whole U.S. and all of our emissions on an annual basis, agriculture as a whole, so all crop and livestock production, is roughly around 9 to 10 percent of U.S. greenhouse gas emissions, depends on the year. And enteric methane from beef cattle, this um, specific area of focus that we have here or that I have at Agnext, is roughly about 2, 2.1% of U.S. greenhouse gas emissions. So it's always important to note, right, that's it's obviously not the main source of emissions in the United States, but it's also not zero, right? And so we're working as all sectors across the economy, right, if we can shave down the amount of emissions that come from this sector, then we're doing our part towards mitigating climate change, right? So back up for that just a second, because you were saying on the one hand, you mentioned 9 to 10%, and then you mentioned 2.1%. What's mm -hmm. tell, tell me the distinction between those two numbers again. Yeah, yeah. So the, the 9 to 10% is all of agricultural activities in the United States. Oh. So everything from growing corn, growing wheat, soybeans, poultry, cattle of all types, swine, all of it all together, all direct agricultural activities in the greenhouse gas emissions that come from them is 9% to 10%. I'd give those two written two numbers because it depends on the years. We can imagine, uh, for okay. example, in 2020, when everybody stopped driving cars, proportionally agriculture went up slightly, right? Because agriculture continued, even though we weren't driving. Um, but that 2.1% is specifically around enteric methane that is belched right out mm -hmm. by cattle mm -hmm. by beef cattle specifically in the united states why beef cattle specifically the dairy cows belch too yeah if you add dairy cows in it's three percent oh okay so just just to this question about beef as you were asking and we don't want to leave the lambs off the hook they do as well or do they not they do, but you know, there's vanishingly small number of sheep in the United States now. Sure. I mean, we're, at, we're at about five million head, right? And they're, they emit probably about a quarter of what a, an individual um, bovine does, right? So, not much. How do you figure out what the what the level is right now? I mean, if we were going to take a feed lot full of cattle, does it outside of Fort Collins or more likely outside of Greeley, Colorado, for example, and say? This is how much there how much methane is coming from 
say, a, an, an annual turn of cattle in, in this particular feedlot? How do you get that number? And then I think we're going to talk about how do you change that number? How do you, how do you improve on that number? Yes. So these, these statistics I'm quoting at you are from the U.S. EPA, so the Environmental Protection Agency. And each year, there's an inventory that's assembled of all economic activities in the United States and estimations of emissions that come from all those activities. So everything from electricity to agriculture is estimated. And how we do that, of course, is the EPA is not putting a bubble over the United States and measuring all those emissions, right? Basically, we're predicting those emissions. We're modeling those emissions. So those numbers that I've quoted you for beef cattle and for all enteric um, fermentation of from cattle of around 3%, those are values coming from modeling, right? So we say we have roughly this number of animals, this level of productivity of those animals leading to this degree of feed intake and roughly this amount of methane based on how much they're consuming and what type of feed. So it's a good place for us to start to kind of get an idea, but really the research part of what we do here at Colorado State Ag Next is collect actual, what we call empirical data, right? Actual observations of emissions from individual animals and say, how well do these estimates from models um, line up to reality? And then also how are the ways that we can, or what are the ways that we can influence methane emissions while paying attention to those other aspects of sustainability, like the economics, the social acceptability, the scalability of solutions? It's really hard for me to imagine how that works in that, you know, estimates from the Environmental Protection Agency, I'm, I'm, sure, they, I'm sure they do good work, but they can't be perfect. And to try to make some broad generalization, just a little bit I know about different kinds of farming operations. Say, for example, a small lot that's finishing out grass-fed cattle in Missouri and compare it to a feedlot outside Amarillo, Texas. I can't imagine that they'd necessarily be the same. And yet, if you're going to have to be at that 30,000-foot level with the Environmental Protection Agency making this broad annual kind of thing, I just question how useful that is. So it's good to know a broad, right, nationwide estimate. But to your point, when, as soon as you keep zooming in, right, we have more of that error that matters for us, right? So all these estimates from the EPA are plus or minus, right? They have some sort of error value around them, right? Um, and that's, that is true. There's things that we do know about emissions from, let's just zoom in on only the enteric part about emissions from, from cattle, right, from ruminants. So for example, we know, and we've observed that with lots of experimental data, data that um, animals that eat a higher fiber diet tend to produce more methane emissions, right? So sure, sure. animals that are grazing, animals that are eating a high forage diet, even in confinement, will emit more methane, especially per unit of feed they consume than animals eating a higher concentrate diet, right? So those are some of those basic things that we know, and we kind of know biological ranges of how much methane is realistic to be produced from an animal. So at a macro level, these things can be okay. But to your point, yes, this is why we want to keep doing this research, because as you refine down to an operation level, you want to become more um, accurate and take into account different diets, different management strategies, et cetera, right? That, um, can be present in the real world. 
if cattle stayed out on grass longer and have a short time to finish on a high energy diet like corn and they're not going to have that same ratio because it's got high energy they're still getting they're still getting roughage so you're still working with some sort of biomass that's in, in there that they're going to be producing some methane but it's a relatively short period of time so a, a system that could say for example where you are in colorado uh, i can just envision cattle staying up in the high mountain meadows as long as the season allowed as long as they possibly could for grazing and whatever belching is happening up there in, in the mountains, I don't know how it's even being captured and and ends up, I suppose, it's going into the atmosphere as well. But then you're coming into a really concentrated period of time to finish into, into feedlots. So it seems it could possibly be, again, a huge difference between operations, between the systems, which is a point you were making earlier. Yes. So that is one of those things that if we think about feedlots and grain finishing of beef cattle, it does help lower total enteric methane emissions because one, it gets animals to the point of harvest faster, right? Mm -hmm. um, from a growth rate. And that's fewer days that animals start belching methane in. They tend to be producing less methane when they go into a feed yard. You know, roughly again, about half the emissions from a standpoint of per unit of feed intake. So for every pound of feed they eat, they make about half the methane when they're in a feedlot compared to grazing. Right. So yeah, that, that is a big, big difference, but it's also that's that complexity of the beef industry is part of the strength of the beef industry, right. Is using all those different resources across the U S. And I think that's always important, right. If we have a single finded, minded focus on enteric methane, we would say, well, we should get all animals into the feedlot as fast as possible. We should do less summer grazing. But of course, we have most of our calves born in the United States within the spring. And part of that beauty of grazing and spreading those animals out over the years. So we have a constant supply of cattle and beef, right, in the U.S. So there's all those trade-offs there when we talk about um, sustainability. But for sure, we know feeding cattle concentrate diets, doing what we can to shorten total total days to harvest and improve growth rates um, can be very effective in lowering methane emissions from the whole system. Well, it's true. And then if we weren't insisting on having everything be fresh, it could go into freezers. But if you're keeping them in the freezers for eight months, that could have been an, uh, outgrowing them. That's using a certain amount of uh, carbon, if not, if not methane. So it's complicated. It is, yes. And that's and that's one of the challenges with sustainability and food production and food choices, right? It's just there's there's trade-offs everywhere. Um, and there's not necessarily a perfect answer, right? So, so much of this is also, as we were talking earlier with different production systems, is context specific. So we just have to be, um, I would say always, you know, we have to be humble in what we suggest as an end-all be-all solution, right? We have to have solutions that fit the right context in the right area. You know, we've talked about sustainability now for, for many years, and one could argue that sustainability has always been our goal because you try to do more than sustain an industry. and and now we're going through regenerative of trying to, you know, improve and grow. And then also we talk about neutrality. So when you use the term neutrality in the areas that you work with, what, is that, what are we neutral about? Is it uh, just that we don't exceed what would normally be the case or if we're offsetting the, the, the carbon in, in some ways? That's a very intuitive question because how you define these things matters a lot in terms of what is achievable and what is not. Um, so 
So yes, to build upon your question, ultimately sustainability is just another word for what we've hopefully always been focused on, which is we have to be able to nourish ourselves and we have to do it in a responsible manner, right? And continue doing that. And of course, today, the one complexity that makes it a little bit different than the issues we were facing 100, 200 years ago is climate change, right? And thinking about the impacts of our food system on a warming climate as well, and the impacts of a warming climate on our food system, which makes this more challenging. But when we think about neutrality, there's a few different ways to define it, right? One is you often hear companies talk about, say, carbon neutrality. And that's simply if you really try to focus in on what that is defined as. That's saying carbon dioxide only, that one greenhouse gas, achieving neutrality of emissions and sequestration or storage on an annual basis every year, right? To truly get to a zero balance, right? So typically, uh, it's fairly accepted. That's what carbon neutrality means. That said, people use it kind of out of turn and say carbon when they mean all greenhouse gas emissions as well, right? So that's where it can get pretty confusing. If we think about other terms of neutrality, um, there's there's debate there, right? But if we think about um, globally, some of the climate commitments that are out there, specifically the Paris Climate Agreement, and we look at the language that's described there, ultimately that agreement is about achieving um, not exceeding one and a half degrees or up to two degrees Celsius global average temperature change compared to pre-industrial times. And the time horizon for that in the future is by the by the end of this century. So that's kind of the goal. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that's that's tricky always to say, okay, well, how does that turn back into emissions? And this is where um, if folks follow kind of this um, conversation around methane, things can sometimes be a little confusing because back to that neutrality word, okay, if our goal is to not exceed a certain global temperature, what do our future emissions need to look like to achieve that? And there's there's pretty wide agreement um, if we think about carbon dioxide emissions, again, that single greenhouse gas that contributes most to warming and mostly is coming from fossil fuels. It's wide agreement we have to achieve zero or below zero, meaning we actually take up more on an annual basis than we emit if we're going to stop warming. Um, so that's widely agreed upon from climate scientists, and that's always repeated pretty much in all IPCC reports, right? We have to achieve zero CO2 emissions to stop warming. Which comes, um, again, from doing like uh, sequestration or or becoming yeah. more efficient, uh, yeah. not, not plowing grounds that could stay uh, without yeah. disturbing the soils and stuff like yes. that. Yes. The, the, big, the, big, the big part of that is we emit... Um, you know, roughly 38, 40 uh, gigatons of CO2 every single year from burning fossil fuels. So we'd have to stop doing that, right? <laughs> um, that's that's kind of our big uh, chunk, and that's what makes it very difficult, right? Um, but there's, there's other greenhouse gases besides CO2. Methane is one of them, and this is the, where it gets tricky is What's also understood is you don't have to take global methane emissions to zero to stop the warming effect of methane in terms of adding warming to our current state. We do need to reduce methane emissions, and it's you know fairly well recognized. I mean, we're going to have to cut them by you know roughly 
30, 40% relative to 2020 by 2050, if we're going to help be on this path, which is a pretty steep decline. But what's important is it's not zero, right? And so that's one of those nuances, right, from a standpoint of we need to cut methane emissions from all sources if we're going to achieve no additional warming. Um, But methane emissions don't have to be zero to have zero warming impact, if that makes sense. Makes sense. You have to kind of slow down and think about that. Uh, yeah, to, to be able to see that to see that picture. One way of saying it is methane's real important to the, to the warming. So a little change can have can have yes. great impact. Yes. The flip side of that, and that's always what's important to note, is if we increase methane emissions, the impact of those show up in the global climate faster. Right. So increasing methane emissions will lead to warming more in the near term. And so that's actually one of those challenges that we've seen the last, especially the last over the past decade is methane concentrations in the global atmosphere have increased and the warming impact of those has also increased, right? In terms of it's it's led to an increased warming impact. Sure. So so that's that's the double-edged sword of when we talk about methane is it's an opportunity, but it's also a challenge if we can't cut methane emissions. Well, let's go back then to looking at what do we do about it because uh, we can see why we're how we're measuring the system and what has to happen and so forth so what's going to be different because um, some people have offered the solution saying that their answer to the question is simply to stop eating beef or to not eat it very often or to have their kids schools ban it from the school menus and stuff like that even universities looking at it too so that's one solution that both of us would agree is not a good solution so what are the things that are good solutions Uh, what can you look at and how can how can you reduce the methane that's being produced with uh, with these livestock systems yeah. So yeah, exactly. So on the on the demand side, I think the reality is is we we will have a growing world population, and there is demand for animal source foods, including beef. One one important caveat there is that it's not that we're eating increasing amounts of beef either in the United States nor in the world, right? So some context there is that you know since the 1970s, Americans have actually been eating a lot less beef, but that's because Beef production is slightly grown, but the human population has grown far more, right? So we're spreading a little bit more beef production out over a lot more plates. And that's happened globally as well. So that's always just important context is that mm-hmm. per capita or per person, the amount of beef consumed in the world has not been increasing. Um, yeah. Actually, the only two animal proteins that have really been significantly increasing, well, three would be poultry, pork, and then dairy, right? Mm-hmm. Those are the three that are actually growing. But anyways, so just that's that's that key context there. That's just kind of the reality of, of the situation. But yeah, we can look at how can we affect enteric methane emissions um, in a few different ways. So one way is actually kind of to spec this discussion about production systems and thinking about systems efficiency. And in the U.S., um, you know, this is a great example. If you compare what we do in this country to other parts of the world um, and just the different Um, opportunities and challenges that exist there. And really, it's all about how many animals does it take to produce beef in a given country? So I always think a powerful example there is in the United States, we are the number one beef producer in the world. So we produce roughly 27 billion pounds of beef every year. 
um, and our cattle herd all together, all beef, all dairy cattle together, uh, is roughly 93 million head when you look at the inventory in January. Um, and then if you think, well, what's number two beef producer in the world? That's Brazil. They produce roughly 21 billion pounds of beef. So less than the United States by roughly 7 billion pounds. Um, but their cattle herd size is over 200 million head. So they have roughly 220 million head of cattle. So to put those two things together, they have twice as many cattle as the United States, but they produce significantly less beef. So it's production because, I mean, so you're yes. back there. You get those, those cattle, um, they're belches per pound or something. Yes, yes exactly. Some way to refer to that is, yeah, yeah. Uh, is like double. Yeah, uh, exactly. Exactly. So that that's one of those things of, you know, and we'll talk about that. There's new technologies, new ways of feeding cattle, and those are exciting opportunities. But sometimes it's just getting back to the basics of animal husbandry, reproductive efficiency. Um, are cows getting bred? Do we have cows that are open, right? Cows that are not pregnant, that are actually eating feed resources, belching methane, they're not producing a calf, right? So those kind of basic things of a production system really matter in the global scheme, probably more than anything else. It's just that efficiency of the global beef system. Which we should pause, should, we should pause yeah. here and give credit to land-grant universities like Colorado State University because yeah. the fact that we're doing so much better than other parts of the world uh, is because we have invested in research and education working yes. with the ranchers and the feedlot operators. Yes, it's made a huge difference. And and I, I can't quote the statistics off the top of my head, but even a country like Brazil has actually made tremendous improvements the last like 20, 30 years. And part of that is because they've made such investments in their own agricultural R&D, right? So yes, that's a huge testament for just doing the basics of animal production better, focusing on animal health, focusing on animal nutrition, reproductive efficiency, the genetic merit of animals has a huge impact on the environmental outcomes from the entire global industry, right? So from a global perspective and for, you know, the cattle industry's contribution to methane, concentrations in the atmosphere that we measure that matters tremendously um the other things that you know and what we focus on here at agnext is thinking about okay we are in a very highly efficient system already what are the additional things that we can do uh, the first thing is that we just try to measure methane emissions on industry typical diets industry typical animals to better baseline where we're at right so back to refining those models making sure they're as accurate as we can have them Another big thing of what we focus on is what goes into the animal, what types of feed ingredients, feed additives, other things that we can look at of testing of how we're affecting um, methane emissions by what we feed cattle. Mm -hmm. um, and another thing is thinking about it, you know, related to us kind of mechanistically, just starting to do some of those collaborations of what are the rumen microbial populations that are present in animals? How are they affected by these feed ingredients and specifically the methanogen populations? And methanogens are root, they're archaea, they're little microorganisms. And as the name methanogen kind of says, they generate methane, right? Um, and so we are interested in understanding those organisms' biology and the differences between animals oh, and their populations. That's right. That's right. So it's actually in those cases, it's not exactly that the cows are burping it's all the little no. critters inside them that are burping. yes exactly yes 
So basically, yes, that's very a very good point. For all of agriculture, most of the emissions are actually coming from microorganisms, whether in the soil or in manure or in rumen. Uh, wow. In the rumen. So it's not really the animals per se at all that are making this methane. It is all microbes. Um, Boy, that that really is a new way of looking at it when you when you start getting back to the microorganisms then too. Because now yes. in soil. We're doing mm-hmm. a lot in understanding what's the right mixture of microorganisms, how you uh, how you build up that microbiome in the soil. So are we going to be doing the same thing in animals of looking at that the gut microbiomes in, in, in these animals? Yes, yes. And, and one could argue more of this work has been done in ruminants in some foundational ways than any other system of microorganisms, just because for us in animal science, it's very important to understand for animal nutrition. So basically, when we feed cattle, we're not actually feeding the cattle, we're feeding the microbes first, and then the microbes basically provide products for the animals. Um, but there's a lot of opportunity for this methane piece specifically, that's still kind of a wide open field of exploration and how we can um, influence that process in positive ways. So cattle have all these little different chambers to be digesting. And so sometimes could the microbes be getting in the wrong spot and say, get out of here. You're, you're not supposed to be here. You're supposed to be over there. And yeah, if, if, yeah. If, the, if the mix isn't happening quite right, they might be doing more than their share of burping or something. Yeah, that's a, it's a good a good call out to just kind of take a step back in case anyone's not familiar. So we say rune and animals, so cattle, sheep, goats, they're unique in that when they consume feed, it first goes to this very large compartment called the rumen which is one of four compartments of their stomach. Um, For cattle, it's always important to kind of visualize like a large, um, large, like for example, large dairy cow, her rumen could be 50 gallons in volume, uh, roughly the size of your bathtub, right? So this is a very large compartment within her that is filled with trillions of microorganisms. So if you just pull out one cc of rumen fluid or one, milliliter of rumen fluid, there's more microbes in that than are there are human beings on planet Earth, right? And you'll hear those similar statistics in soil, right? So these are both just very microbe-rich environments, right? Um, so what's what's taking place there is there's a whole microbial ecosystem basically within that animal that we are influencing by how we feed that animal um, and, and the environment that they've grown up in, right? So this little subset of those microbes, those methanogens, is what we're very interested in is how can we influence their metabolism? Um, and that's one of those complexities of methane or one of those potential win-wins is that when we think about methane leaving a cow, it's basically feed energy or feed calories that we've given that animal that's being lost to the atmosphere. So always our goal is to figure out can we redirect that energy rather than being lost as methane by influencing the rumen microbial fermentation? Can we actually capture it in growth in meat or milk, right? Ideally, um, and get a win-win where we improve efficiency of the animal, but also reduce environmental impacts from the standpoint of reducing methane. So, it, I mean, humans sometimes have gas. I don't, I don't want to go too far with this analogy, but, you know, but in the case of humans, they're they're tinkering with trying to balance this out by having uh, kombucha or, or yogurt yes, yeah, or, or yeah. kefir. So, yeah. and, and it actually ends up having impact on humans. I mean, sometimes humans feel like they're having more gas because they're getting that ratio of, of the good uh, bacteria that they're putting into their gut. So, um, 
Am I going too far to try to make that correlation? <laughs> no, no. I mean, there are probiotics, right, that we feed to cattle as well, right? So there's there's some similarities there. But what's unique about cattle is they're uh, what we call for for gut fermenter, right? Their yeah. fermentation is happening before their gastric stomach, and that's important because that's where most of the methane is actually coming out the front end of the animal, right? All this fermentation is taking place. And then it's released, goes out their mouth, right? Basically out the out, out their esophagus and rumen contractions about once a minute, um, which we see when we measure these emissions with the equipment that we use in our research facilities. So some of the science we're already tripping through here is is that on the on the one hand, it's just get better and better at what we've done a good job of in the past as far as looking at production and feed efficiencies and all these sorts of things, which you've mentioned, and it's being led by land-grant universities and extension service and so forth. The next one's kind of intriguing is touching on this whole impact of the microbiome and and what those little critters in the guts are doing and how much that they're they're burping. But then mm-hmm. I kind of wonder the frontier beyond that that I makes me think about is is DNA and looking at genetics and, yeah, and yeah. whether or not you find some keys in the genetics that are either some that are predisposed to be able to do a better job than others. Yeah, so that's our kind of our last key focus of what we look at and how we're starting to build some um, data sets there that are going to be helpful for us to explore that question. So. Um, I can share with you, we have emissions on um, several hundred animals um, that we've collected over the last 10 months, basically. Um, And we have situations where we have animals that are all from the same ranch of origin. They're all same breed. They're eating the exact same diet. There are similar body weights. They have slightly different feed intakes, but they make 30% different amounts of methane per day. So that's a huge amount, right? If we thought about a 30% reduction in methane from a feed additive, that uh, you know, somebody manufacturing that would be very happy with their results, right? But we have that level of variation that just exists within a population of cattle that are all being treated the same and fed the same diet. Hmm. So for us, um, that that in addition to other research that's been published around the world, looking at the heritability of methane points to the fact that there is a genetic component from a cattle genetic standpoint of methane emissions. And so our hope is to contribute to that in the future in terms of helping breeds, helping across um, the industry develop selection criteria that would include methane emissions in addition to all the other things that they may build into a production index, right, for um, selection decisions for commercial producers. For us, that's an intriguing solution because that does not require us to feed a feed additive or anything else to uh, cattle out on pasture rangeland, right? We just breed for animals that are naturally produce less methane. You know, without declaring who's winning that race, are you seeing some variations among breeds? Like some breeds might be a little bit more that way than other breeds? Yeah. So we have some research right going now that with uh, very different breeds, but right now what we can conclude is really there's basically more variation within a breed, it seems, than necessarily across breeds, right? So which is probably not too surprising for folks when they think about many other traits, right? There's oftentimes a lot of that um, heterogeneity or variation, right, between within a breed. Um, so that example I gave earlier, that was within a population of purebred Angus animals, right, um, that have that much variation. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, we, we will, um, they'll be um, finishing a few experiments in the near future that have 
different breed composites, and then also Boss Indicus animals to compare with Boss Taurus, Boss Indicus being specifically, in this case, Brahmin cattle, right? The long-eared, more tropically adapted cattle. Well, that's what I was wondering, because you do make those choices, and you see certainly in the South, you see more of those long-eared cattle with a little bit of a hump. They've got some Brahma Mm -hmm. blood in them, and they do better in, in in the South, and and they also, it has some implications on how used they are to dealing with some of the insects and other issues that are mm-hmm. that are kind of clear to the environment. So I could see how that's a frontier. So again, you know, we're talking about, we've started with the atmosphere, started with, you know, with the climate and the atmosphere, and we're getting into the science of your application of animal science, and you're getting into the microbiome, and now we're going into genetics, and you're just putting all the magic stuff together. Yes. Yes. So animal genetics matters to climate change, right? So all those things are are connected and that that hopefully makes sense, right? Ultimately, if we're going to tackle these bigger issues of the macro level global picture, right, we have to be able to put all those pieces together. And as I mentioned, right, some of our focus is on these solutions that they're going to make a lot more sense in in many cases in developed countries, right, where we don't maybe have as much of those low-hanging fruit opportunities to just improve the whole system. Um, but that's a great example of we got to find solutions that fit in different places, right? And not have a broad brush of a single solution across the whole. I look back at having pigs when I was 10 years old and we started having uh, kind of cutout information on litter mates mm-hmm. and so forth and how quickly you could make a difference uh, mm-hmm. by by knowing things like back fat and square inches of loin eye and so forth. And then when you start tracking things like that, at least in hogs, you could turn it around in, in two generations of, yeah. of, turn, of turning them around and making such a huge difference. So I could see yeah. how you could apply this technology now and among ruminant animals and make it almost that quick. Yeah, so that is that is the absolute key is you, you uh, manage what you measure. And I think our, our challenge in terms of why we haven't done this yet with enteric methane is because it's been a challenge to measure. But now that we have some of those tools, especially at Colorado State to measure methane emissions on a more large-scale basis of individual animals, that opens up that possibility of, heck yes, we could right reduce methane emissions hopefully much faster as we we're able to integrate that information into um, actual commercial producers' operations. You know, there aren't many kind of closed-loop systems anymore of somebody that's got their own calves. Well, I guess they do. I mean, there are people, there are ranchers that are are custom feeding their cattle and so they they know everything about the cattle that they've raised and they've been out on and they've got mother's milk and grass and then they put them in a feedlot and they pay the feedlot to feed them to feed them out for them uh, so i i can see where they could they could do that but if you were an individual a farmer that say i want to know what is my what is my footprint right now what what am I uh, producing in terms of total carbon or, or methane greenhouse gases? Um, can they do it? I mean, do they have? They don't have to start with the EPA. Uh, how do you, how do you look yourself in the mirror and say, "Here's what I'm doing"? Yeah, so it is challenging because um, the reality is is that very few people are going to be able to afford the equipment to actually measure these emissions. Right? They're hard to quantify. They're hard to measure on um, commercial operations. So. Oftentimes you are using modeling techniques to try to estimate your emissions. 
Um, so there are different softwares out there, different companies that offer those services. Um, for example, Colorado State has a tool called Comet Farm um, that you can use. It's online um, to try to estimate your emissions of your operation, whether you're a livestock producer or not. Right. So those are some of those tools that are out there. Um, but they're not specific to your operation in terms of actual measurement. And that's that's one of our challenges is, um, say, unlike uh, traits such as, you know, if you're growing corn, you can you can estimate your yield pretty easily. Right. You know how much you're taking off each field per acre. Right. You can you can calculate that. It's a lot harder for you to estimate your methane from your cattle herd or um, nitrous oxide emissions and other greenhouse gas emission from your corn ground. Right. So we kind of had to lean on models in those cases. And so those are some of those opportunities for folks. Um, we hope to keep developing and improving those type of tools here at Agnext as well and make sure those things are publicly available for folks um, to use in the future. Um, but can relate to your other point about, you know, measuring things and, and thinking about the value there and folks that do do retained ownership. I think the other important thing is to think about examples within the cattle industry of where, um, you know, genetic selection and emphasis on things has led to a clear economic signal. And I think a really great example there in the beef industry has been uh, carcass quality, right? So the increase in the United States and the amount of choice and prime beef over the last 10, 15 years has been tremendous, right? Uh, we've gone from roughly half to 80 plus percent choice and prime uh, for all animals going through packing plants, right? Which is pretty amazing for fed cattle. And really that's been driven by the fact that there's economic incentives, right? People are getting paid for quality. And so they, they strive for quality, right? And I think that's the the opportunity and the challenge in the greenhouse gas space is there's no such mechanism right now to to differentiate those emissions, right, or to compensate uh, producers for for that effort for those efforts, right? And I think as those things potentially develop, there's more of an opportunity there to kind of create that positive feedback loop of reducing emissions faster um, when it's tied to economic benefit. For folks. Sarah, tell me, uh, how'd you get into this? There was some point in time where you weren't quite sure what you were going to be when you grew up, but then you came to the conclusion that it was going to be this direction, apparently. How'd you get here? Yeah, so I'm from upstate New York originally. Um, I grew up on a dairy farm uh, up there on a 70 cow dairy, so small, small dairy operation. Um, and for me, I've always been interested in agriculture because of that growing up in that environment, but then also interested in the environment as well, just because upstate New York, it's a beautiful place. And that's, that's always been kind of my two interests that have converged. Uh, so for me, I, I went to Cornell University for animal science and was really focused on dairy cattle management, dairy farm business management type courses, but also took some environmental uh, classes there. And that's really what intrigued me on thinking of maybe going into nutrient management, for example. Um, but then ended up uh, having the the opportunity, I was at a conference, I met Frank Midliner um, at a conference when I was an undergrad and found the research on air quality and greenhouse gas emissions in cattle very interesting and ended up applying to grad school to go out there and do my PhD in um, animal biology at UC Davis and focused on enteric methane emissions. And so from there, I've kind of taken on a winding path. I've spent some time in academia prior to in Oklahoma State for about four years. Um, I worked at the National Cattlemen's Beef Association, running their sustainability research program for a few years, and also spent some time in Elanco Animal Health as their chief sustainability officer. 
And so each one of those experiences has given me um, different insights into how the industry works, different, you know, for-profit, nonprofit, academia, um, and decided to come back to academia because ultimately, um, as we've been discussing, there's a lot of these things you can do with modeling, but there's limitations for what we know. And really the only place where you're going to answer some of these questions about the actual uh, real world of things like enteric methane emissions and the variability from animal to animal is where you can do that research. And that's at a university like Colorado State um, and with the resources that we have at at Agnext and the partnerships that we've delivered, uh, had and developed with industry here is what makes it really, really unique. So being surrounded with this issue as often as you are, has it has it affected how you live your life? <laughs> it, uh, did you like, you know, sell your car and get a course or, or anything <laughs> like that? No, not per se. Right. So I think uh, I try to be conscious of of those things that though I will always joke at other places where I worked, um, you know, when I worked at Elanco or um, at NCBA, I always said, you know, the number one thing people could do to cut the carbon footprint of the organization is probably fire me because I fly in an airplane so much. Right. So there's some of those challenges, right, of the reality of doing your job as uh, an expert in an area and what that requires in today's modern society and then running up against those realities of well we need energy in the world and we need to have transportation so how do we achieve that so i think for me it's more of thinking about the bigger picture and those solutions of how do you create um how do you create solutions that so allow people to have high quality of life right um but do so with less of an environmental impact well i don't think anybody should have ever fired you but I yeah, do I think appreciate it, that. Thank you. But I, I yeah. do think that traveling thing is uh, is coming up high on the list more and more because yeah. people are saying, yeah. you know, and we've learned, uh, I think, almost to the extreme that we can do Zooms as we're doing today. Exactly. And uh, you don't have to fly everywhere. It's good to do yes. it once in a while. I've seen some of these aggressive lists now that are saying you should try not to fly more than once every three years, which I think is excessive. But yeah. uh, there was a stage I was flying every week, so I think that was excessive and exhausting. But yes, yeah. yes, yeah. that's part of the that's part of the challenge, right? Is is how do you achieve achieve all those things we want out of society, but then also pay attention to things like climate change because that reality check of if we want to stop warming, we have to take CO two emissions to yeah. net zero or neutrality. Is a very daunting task. Well, yeah. that just reminds me one other thing. Uh, back as you mentioned that you also work for Elanco for a while. And Elanco's a fine company. I've worked with them in the past as well, and they're based out of Indianapolis, in Indiana. But companies like Elanco uh, will start seeing some of the ideas you're coming up with and find something commercial that they can that they can um, be able to make a product uh, that takes advantage of this so i would imagine you'll start seeing more and more companies that are saying wonder how we participate in this and how we can contribute a solution that also makes money for our stockholders yeah and there are companies that have developed solutions there's one in particular that holds the most promise that is still not approved in the united states though um can you share probably be well yes it's uh commercially called Beauvais. And uh, if folks follow the news in this space, they'll, they will have seen um, information on it. There's also much of the experimental work that's been done has been published, which is good from a standpoint of um, demonstrating efficacy and making sure folks are aware of, of the product. So 
the chemical is called 3-nitroxypropanol, which doesn't really roll off the tongue. So that's no. the commercial name is Bovair, but it was developed by scientists at the company ESM, which is a European company. Um, and they are, they are the company that's marketing it globally um, for cattle. And in the United States, it will be marketed by Elenco Animal Health. But it is a feed additive that can cut methane emissions from uh, dairy cattle and beef cattle. Um, roughly about 30%, depending on the dose, depending on the diet for dairy cows, and roughly 50% for feedlot cattle, again, depending on the dose, depending on the diet. Mm. Um, so pretty substantial reductions, but that is the one solution out there that probably holds the most promise in the near term when, once it becomes commercially available and actually is approved by the FDA. Well, it's kind of a gas X, uh, the human <laughs> yes, yeah, okay. I've heard people call it that, right? Yeah. So yeah. There's, and we got probiotics, uh, we got gas X, we got all yeah. these things that are kind of some, but it's all pointing in a positive direction. And I guess uh, I just want to wrap up then uh, two quick things. One is thinking of a positive direction. Um, what do you see on the horizon that gives you the most optimism about the future? So if over these next several years, uh, where do you hope that we get or think we may get that you're upbeat about? Yeah, so I think on the topic of greenhouse gas emissions, I think we're going to find more solutions such as this Bovair product in the future, right? Um, I think that's going to come out of doing more collaborative research with microbiologists and better understanding those um, methanogens, those methane generating bugs in the room. And, and I think the other big area of promise is this genetic selection area, right? Because that has the ability to be widely adopted um, and especially in grazing cattle systems where it's hard to feed a feed additive, of course, for obvious reasons. Um, so I think those things are really positive. And I think the other key thing is also just keeping that focus on ruminants and their potential to um, generate high quality human food from low quality inputs, meaning obviously low quality feeds from a standpoint of human nutrition. And I think anything we can do to kind of enhance that productivity and enhance that um, efficiency of ruminant production around the world is something that is very exciting to me because, again, I think that's the biggest bucket of opportunity for us is to improve uh, efficiency of those cattle systems around the world. Well, that sounds like a great wish list. And I wonder something you mentioned about how the Environmental Protection Agency is coming up, you know, with their annual predictions. It 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 sounds to me like they could come up with more categories rather than this is agriculture and this is beef production and this is feedlots. Because just in our discussion today, uh, there is a whole lot of variations of, of outcomes uh, already. And I can't imagine that, um, that a federal environmental protection agency is able to come up every year with all those variations. Uh, it's going to be a fairly great big picture, and it's not helping you that much. So maybe maybe they can slice and dice it a little bit finer than they sounds like they're doing so far. Yeah. yeah, and that's hopefully the data that we collect, the real observations that we collect can help um, agencies such as the EPA and others refine what their estimates are, right? And so yeah. um, it will be helpful for us because uh, actually the folks that do a lot of that modeling that goes into the in inventory are actually here at Colorado State University. So they do that work as as contractors for the EPA. So it's fairly easy for us to hopefully influence that process as we get better data to uh, make sure models is as accurate as they can be. Well, I feel better already just knowing they're in Fort Collins. <laughs> yes. So now then the actual final thing, if any 
anybody wants to know more about your Ag Next program and things that are going on at Colorado State and the subjects we've talked about today, where would you point them to get further information? Yeah, the best place to check out is agnext.colostate.edu, so our website, or if you just Google Agnext and Colorado State, it'll take you to that website. And that is a great resource for um, information. So we always have um, you know blog posts, latest uh, peer-reviewed publications, um, and also it's a, a great place to find um, our other outlets. So we actually have a a podcast and um, other social media, right, as as resources there of what we're doing, the new information we're finding, um, and resources for folks. So I'd say definitely check out that resource to learn more about Agnex and then this whole broad topic of sustainability and greenhouse gases and animal agriculture. Well, I sure appreciate this conversation. I've I've learned quite a bit again today, and I want to thank you, Sarah Place, for being on Farm to Table Talk. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. You've been listening to Farm to Table Talk with your host, Roger Wasson. 